Hi, I'm Peter Seth, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Peter Seth. He's the author of What It Was. Oh, jeez, I screwed that up. Because yeah. look, look at my writing. This I is terrible. What am I doing? Both titles are like The first one was What It Was Like. This is When I Got Out. When I Got Out. Got it. All right. Take two. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Peter Seth. He's the author of What It Was Like and his new book, the sequel, When I Got Out. He has been a writer for TV and wrote, produced, and directed the award-winning film Lunch with Louie. Peter, how are you? I'm great. Good to see you, Tony. It's great to see you. Um, how much fun is it to keep writing a, to, to the sequel? Did you have a sequel in mind for your, when you were working on the first book? I really didn't have a sequel in mind, but almost as soon as I finished the first book, I said, hey, there's another story there, and I could, in a way, complete a story and rectify some of the problems from the first and uh, really uh, give myself something even better to work on, more, more challenging. Oh, how, how, how much fun is that? Because I think as, when you're a writer, when we write, you know, and it's just like, even after it's published, you're like, oh, crap, that got in there? There's, there's never a finish to it. It's... Well, there's a famous quote from uh, Paul Valery. He says, said, a work of art is never finished, it's only abandoned. Yes. And so sometimes, you know, uh, my publisher said, yeah, here's the deadline, send it in, this is it. You know, last, And you always have last uh, chances to make some changes, even in pages. You're making pages right till the end. But, you know, books get printed all the time. You see typos and stuff gets by and you do your best. And it's, it's amazing how many typos get by. And also, I have found as a reader that I don't notice the typos until someone tells me, oh, did you see that on page 68? And I'll be like, oh, wow. And it, I guess because our brains, our brains are actually autocorrect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. And we as writers, we could be looking at something, we've looked at it hundreds of times on a page. We'll be revised and never see it. Yeah. So the brain does, it takes shortcuts. Yeah. So that's why there are proofreaders. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Thank God for proofreaders, copy editors, and fact checkers. I, I started out right after college working at a book publisher. So I love book people and yeah. the copy editors and the proofreaders and the editorial assistants who keep the book business going. Yeah. No, when I was, when I was uh, working at the San Francisco Chronicle, the copy editors would call me on a Sunday morning and they would, they would apologize profusely. And I'm like, no, no, no. Do not apologize. I'm sorry. I screwed up. Thank you for making me look good. That was it. You know, I owe you. No, those guys are some of the, the greatest perfectionists. And my, oh, sure, certainly my copy editor on this book helped me a lot. You know, the stuff you can look at a million times and they can find, oh, you need this, this, and this, or a sequence thing or something, or a repeated word. And any, any help is good. <laughs> exactly. Now, if we can only have copy editors and that in real-life situations, I think, that would, uh, I think that would up my game. It's like the Jiminy Cricket in your in your head, uh, correcting you grammatically and, and and otherwise, and conscious like the, like morality wise, going no Tony, that's a really bad idea. And then and then the other thing is listening to that voice. Well, they're, they're, those are two separate things. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's I, I feel like as I get older, the, the I get more of the um, what do you call it the. The learning to listen to the the one that's going no, that's a really bad idea. Um, 
and you know, fortunately for uh, my relationships, uh, it's uh, I go, oh wow, you know, I almost wanted to say this, and I'm glad I didn't. And then sometimes they are like, you shouldn't have even have told me that. Well, that's one of the things you learn getting older. Sometimes not saying anything is the best thing. Sometimes you just let other people talk, and you can find out more and uh, you know, learn more. <laughs> just keeping quiet is sometimes the, the right thing to do. And, and the listening, because I, I, so many times, I mean, especially look, look at me, I'm in a podcast and we're like, we're throwing a microphone back and forth at each other and our mouths are moving, right? But it's just like, we really, it's, it's so important. I find myself doing this too, where I'm like, oh, what am I going to say next? But at the same time, I like just to keep listening and go, wait a second, that was interesting. I got to not even think what I was saying next, because that's way cooler than I ever would have had. Well, it's true. I got some coaching from all these interviews. And one of the first things uh, one of my coaches said is, you have to learn to listen uh, actively. Listen to understand what the other person's saying. Don't listen just to then be able to throw in your response. Really listen and then get a dialogue going. And it's, it's much better for the interview. It's much better for the, the listener. But, but a lot of times you are waiting, oh, I'm going to throw in this, I have this bit, I, I got to throw in this bit. But if you let it flow, it's just better. I've, and there's been times where I've had like the, I've had the joke waiting. I'm like, oh my god, this is going to be really funny. And then I say it, and I'm like, that would have been funny like 30 seconds ago. But now we're on a new we're on a new page, man. And your show is from what I heard is just so natural. It's just, the, it's just a conversation. It's not an appearance to pitch something and then the next guy pitching something or the next yeah the next promo. But no, that's why it's. Uh Drinks with Tony, and you know. <laughs> so, so um, someone, uh, someone coached you as you were uh, getting ready to talk about the book. I have great friends, and one of my best friends is uh, an acting coach and a dialogue coach, and she does this for just big time for the studios uh, to prepare people. And she said, "Let me, let me give you uh, an hour of coaching," and it was great. And she, the pros know stuff, and she gave me great advice and. Uh, I'll see how it works out, but I'm feeling good. <laughs> so, what? Because uh, what, I need to know this for when I have something to be interviewed for again, too, right? So, what, what's some of the like? What are the things that she would talk about? Did she, does she share with you what she talks about to like the um, celebrities and stars going out? Oh, totally. This yeah. is one of the things she does. But it's inter- interesting. One of the first uh, directions was no over talking. Try not to over talk. But with you switching the microphone back, I don't have to worry about that. But no over talking. Uh, try to speak in complete sentences and complete thoughts with a beginning, middle, and end. Don't interrupt yourself. Talk about full thoughts and then send it back. I should go to her to learn how to do a podcast. <laughs> I said, I said, I said to her, "Can I give you money?" She said, "Don't you dare!" She said, she said, "But I charge the studios plenty." Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. When it's when it's in the budget, the the rate is high. <laughs> for, a fr- for a friend now, friends are free. And that's what's, that's that's the beauty of this whole like uh, you know what we're doing and just being in the artist community and stuff is, it's like we kind of take care of each other because there's ebbs and flows and all of this, you know income and actually getting gigs and stuff. It's one of the great things in being in a place like Los Angeles. We're all surrounded by people. You know, I have a lot of friends who are actors and writers and painters and photographers and, and, and everyone's struggling to get their thing out in this crazy, busy world where there are a lot of actors, writers and painters and we're all just doing our best and you support your friends and there's good stuff out there. Wait, um, what, now you're from Brooklyn. You grew up in Long Island. Is that right? Now, what, what brought you to Los Angeles? What, was, what, what brought you to this paradise, paradise, paradise state? Well, uh, my wife was in the movie business and got an offer she couldn't refuse. Yeah. So we moved. That sounds like a mafia type thing. It practically was. Yeah. But no, she got a great offer uh, to move 
from New York to L.A. And then we, we held on to our New York house. We just rented it out to see if we like L.A. And uh, 30 years later, we're still there. So we're still there and we love it. I mean, I love New York, but I, I'm not moving from L.A. It is. It's a good place. And then, um, so, so when you were in New York, what were you doing in New York? And then, did, well, what did you switch up when you came to Los Angeles? Were you writing when you were in New York? I, I was uh, working. I got out of college, went to work for some um, book publishers. Then I became a copywriter, did freelance copywriting. Oh, okay. Yes, and then uh, I started to write screenplays and and uh, plays, and just started to get churning out screenplays. And then by then, it was time to move to L.A., which is where they make the movies. It was it was the time. And, uh, and you and your wife are still together. Yes, I married my college sweetheart, and I, I'm, the, I'm a very lucky man. She, she's the best. Now, when, um, and is she also a writer? Is she on the creative end of things? All men marry up, but I really married up. My wife, is, she's published three books. Uh, she's a, was a real force in the movie business. Yeah. Uh, uh, what can I say? She's a wonderful wife and mother, and... Yeah. and uh, and edits my blog and gives me advice in all areas. I was say, help in all areas. I get, I get help in all areas. That's awesome. See, I'm a divorced fella, so I love hearing about the long-term ones that work out. Because especially in the, especially in uh, you know being in the art, being an artist or being in the creative, the intensities of the highs and the lows, and to ride that with somebody who understands it, that's I that's pure gold to find. That's the leprechaun at the end of the rainbow, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely true. Uh, a friend of uh, ours said to my wife, see, you already won the lottery. It's like, you know, if you have a good marriage, that's winning, that is winning the lottery. And, uh, no, it helps you get through the, the ups and downs of everyday life. And, and, the, and the artist's life, especially, which is a, a roller coaster. It looks pretty about, uh, you know, a few hours every uh, six months or so, but the rest of the time it's not very pretty, I don't think. It's not pretty, but it's so funny. I was listening to someone talk about how uh, I was on the uh, Emmys last night. How painful writing is, and it's—I mean, it's—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a job. But if it were all that painful, painful, we wouldn't do it. There are highs to it, and and rewards that we get uh, every day that, or every other day, every third day that make it all worthwhile. And it's not money. It's not. It's it's what we do. And I mean. I think roofing would be so much harder. I, it's oh my God! Oh, I've had, I worked. Yeah, you know, I'm sure we've all had. Yeah. Work, job. Roof? No, I. Uh, what's the word? What's, I had some bad job. Telephone soliciting was a bad oh job. I did. Telephone soliciting that's seems bad. like the worst. That's sad. You just get hung up on uh, kitchen work and kitchen work in the back of yeah, a yeah. of a restaurant. That was bad. Uh, did you see that film? Uh, it was a couple years ago. Sorry to bother you. No, which one? Who's in that? Um, oh man, I met Boots Riley directed it, and um, it was it was about a guy in telemarketing. And since you've done the telemarketing, you'll you will get a huge kick out of out of how he edited it, how he wrote it. It just it's uh, it was beautiful. Oh. So I, I highly recommend that to you. That's my another movie I got to see. There's right, right. there's so much out there, but that sounds really fun. Especially, and so you've been, yeah, I've, I've done all my restaurant works. I've loaded trucks at UPS. Um, you know, and even, the, even in those days, because I was doing the night shift loading trucks, hoping I can get a day shift as a driver and get union benefits and get paid very well. And they would not give me the job. And I'm so lucky they didn't. 
because I might not be here with you right now. I might be like happily just merrily, you know, in Palo Alto giving, you know, going, hey, I'm almost retired. Well, it's funny. We, in all these, these talks, I mean, in readings and stuff and talking to people, you never know where life is going to lead you. It always takes strange twists. So you just have to ride, you know, ride with the twists. You know, because you, you certainly have minimal control over what happens. You have some control, but, you know, fate is going gonna, is gonna to do something to you. And I think that's why we're lucky, especially, you know, working if you're working on film or if you're working in other mediums of writing, we have our novels and those those have our name on it and those we kind of have to live and die by. And it's 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 kind of fun and scary all at once. It is. I'm glad that I have novels out. I got tired of writing unproduced screenplays and every screenwriter I talk to says, gee, I envy you. I wish I could uh, write a novel that I have control of, that I don't have to go out and have meetings with, uh, you know, how are you on cursing in this? I love cursing. Schmucks. <laughs> is schmuck a curse? No, it's schmuck. It's, schmuck, it's cursy. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's, we're not Howard. We're not Howard, but uh, exactly. But no, but yeah, and, and just to be able to control. You know, I talk to a lot of screenwriters, and we always say that when you're a novelist, you're the director, you're the actors, you're the art director, you do the special effects, you do the CGI. It's all in your control. And not only that, you have to put it on the page so when the reader reads it, they're, the, they're also the lighting person and they're bringing their crew and staff to it in a certain way. Well, that's the, the skill of a writer, to try to make, make uh, the, the story real for uh, the reader. That's, that's sort of what I always concentrate on. I try to make the reader sort of experience what my guy is going through. It's first person, and I want the reader to, you know, to be tortured along with with my main character you know go through go through the story i love that you brought up torture because this is what i'm always i'm always butting my head against my students on this because they you know they try to avoid conflict and i'm like look we do that in real life we are avoiding conflict every day in real life you know we may want to punch a person we just don't but on the page that person needs to be punched and we need to see the consequences that's the whole purpose of stories is to to enact the things that we can't do in real life. They act out for us, and we see things through them. So yes, I, I uh, came across something uh, Kurt Vonnegut said he, to otherwise he said, "Be a sadist." You know, really, you know, put your uh, characters through hell and bring them out or don't bring them out. But you want a deep, passionate story. You don't want uh, you don't want yeah you, know, you want normal life. But uh, you know, uh, what's the great uh, Emily Dickinson? Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Like that a lot. She's, yeah. She's very smart. The um, wait the uh, I, now I'm just uh, I really liked that. So now I totally lost my thought. And, and we don't and we don't edit at all. So this stays in. <laughs> it's okay. Hey, it's fine. No, it's real. Yeah. The um, the the beauty of uh being able to yeah being able to live for our character through our characters and kind of you know torture them. But at the same time, this is what I find, even with my antagonist. And I'm like going, this motherfucker, this is the guy that used to be my landlord. And I just, and, and I'm writing that character. And, uh, you know, and I'm just thinking in my head, I'm so happy to make him a piece of shit. And then, like, you know, more drafts in, I'm totally empathetic for the antagonist. And it brings me empathy to people in general. And I, it freaks me out. No, it can make a better story, especially when you get into the story. The uh, famous, uh, uh, you know, one of the greatest novels of all time, Anna Karenina, when Tolstoy started that it was originally more focused on the husband who had been wronged 
And that was the original focus of the novel. And as he got more into it, he realized that, no, the great story is Anna. And, and this is Tolstoy changing his mind in, in, in midstream. So a lot of times you can find, as you move into the story, different avenues of sympathy in different characters. It makes it better. It makes it realer. And then we get to walk through life, and when someone's being an asshole, you go, oh, wait. And then we can kind of put the story to mind of like how their day was to when they got there and just kind of go, Oh yeah, that might he might have had some really bad things happen to him, you know. I know it's and it's you know it's the uh, another great who's it uh, Jean Renoir Wah said something about uh, the uh, the big tragedy in life is that everybody has his reasons, something like that. It's the same thing that you know you know bad guys, all the the bad guys in our in our world they think they're doing right. They think they're standing up for some principle. It might be a weird principle, but they they don't think they're bad guys. And even on the page, our antagonists are the heroes of their own stories. Right. And, yeah, and, and, and well, this book is a key point where suddenly, oh, you get a little sympathy for this, this villain. You've been after this villain the whole book, and, oh, there's a little moment of, oh, maybe uh, he has something to say. Right. And, it, and, it, it, and it's, good, uh, it's a good jolt in the plot. I really love the idea. Well, I don't love the idea of being in prison for a long time. That's terrible. But you put your character through that, and it's and it's also it's almost like time travel at the same time because when you're incarcerated to to being in and then being out and seeing what the world's like, I, that I how fun was that to work on? Well, that was that was great. That's really what uh, you know enticed me to do the to do this second book. Is is my guy could come out of prison after forty years. Uh, like Rip Van Winkle almost, like a stranger in a strange land. And he is to get used to uh, the new America. So it's, part of it's getting used to the internet and social media. But it's also the way people treat each other. And it's, uh, it's a, a different world that he has to, you know, try to uh, make his way in. And it's hard enough for ex-cons as it is. And he's the extra uh, uh, issue of his lawyer stole the money that was left to him. So he is his plateful trying to deal with, uh, with uh, America. When, when you're working on that character, do you really, ha- you really must have had to go back 40 years and kind of, it's almost more research on the past and what he would have been, had access to on the outside before going in. Is that the case? Well, the first book was in 1969. So this is, that was the initial teenage murder of passion. So this is 40 years later, and he gets out. And, there, and although the, the second book stands alone, you don't have to have read the first book to read, this, read the second. We made real sure of that. <laughs> but, but you understand uh, what was in his past and uh, what he's trying to live down. I mean, a lot of people later in life are looking for second chances and, and having to restart their lives. Then it might not be out of 40 years of prison, but they're looking for uh, you know, new ways to, uh, to get by. And he, his, you know, that's his, his adventure. Yeah. I, I've been trying to restart this year for the past, you know, nine months. So, God, and you never know. And and, and people, you, know, you get into uh, into ruts and patterns, and then you can jolt and and uh, be out of them. Uh, you know, uh, that's why you know the surprises of life uh, never stop. It's intriguing about the different, like, how we have our patterns. Because I've known with myself, I kind of found out like this last year that I, I, have, I have a self-sabotaging thing going on where I thought I was really being goal-oriented and attaining these goals. And then I was realizing how much I'm getting in the way of my goals. So I really had to do a lot of self-work. Um, I don't know why I told you that. I think your eyes are just so compelling and no, empathy. No, your show is like this. I hear, yeah, I've been listening. And you have, you have great, regular, deep conversations like 
people have, not like yeah. re, not like yeah, not like interviews, like just conversations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's you know, and I think that's what people want to hear. People want to hear about uh, about uh, re, I know there are a lot of people fans of science fiction and all kinds of fiction. I reality is enough for me. <laughs> really, really scary enough. <laughs> yeah, it's um. Yeah, and I guess I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I find myself writing my way. As I'm writing fictional characters, then I find, oh wow, that's that's weird crap that I do that I need to work on. Maybe I just need to go to therapy more. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's therapeutic. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, I invest in my characters. A lot of it's me. A lot of it's like it's not me. But but you always are drawing on yourself, and you know, and and uh, you know, you you look for material wherever you can find it, in wherever parts of your psyche you can mine. Uh, I'm working on something now. It's a, it's a father-daughter thing, and I'm thinking everything my daughter ever said said to me, and bringing that back. So, you know, you you get what you can. And I think that I think though, oh my, I, I can't wait to read that because I love the whole father-daughter uh, dynamic. There's just so much to call from, and I've had so many friends who, I've seen their you know daughters go from diapers to college, and you're just and it's just like wow, you know, now these ladies are like adults. But you know, I was feeding you baby food when I was babysitting you. Yes, it's 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 a great transition. I'm I'm looking forward to to, to working on this because I do have a great daughter and we we have a great relationship. But there's a lot of a lot of stuff to uh, uh, to mine in, in any uh, any family relationship. There's there's good stuff there to uh, you can horribleize into fiction and drama. And I and I feel like it's really healthy for I don't have kids, so tell me if I'm wrong. But it's really healthy for them to to get to the point of hating their parents for a little while and rebelling I mean is that is that uh, absolutely we always said it he said if your teenager is not rebelling he's not doing his job yeah. I have great kids but they had to rebel my I had a great son but he had a green mohawk for a while <laughs> and he always said to he said to his mom it's only hair it's only hair but now he then he came down to, to earth and you you know you go through all you know again uh, the roller coaster of, uh, of life yeah so are, you, are your kids out of the house now? Or? Yeah, my kids are grown up. They're, my, my sons, uh, I like to say I'm the, the father of a teacher and the son of a teacher. So my, my son teaches art, studio art and art history. Yeah. And my daughter is a, uh, a content producer for the for internet and on the verge of a new job I'm not allowed to talk about. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. And, and to, fi- to finish the, uh, the pie, I have a great daughter-in-law, Katrina, and two grandsons. Which is my my true joy, and especially this year. I have a second novel and a second grandson, so I'm having a pretty good year. So, do you totally spoil the grandkids, and then uh, your 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 sons are like, "Come on, Dad, you didn't do that to me." Is that the? Well, I'm allowed to do a little spoiling, but uh, they they're great parents, and I just try to follow their direction. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a soldier in their army because the kids are growing up great. So, and and yeah, I have a wonderful wonderful son and daughter-in-law. They really know what they're doing. How do they how do they feel about dad being a writer? I think they like it. They, yeah, they you know, they came to my readings and you know, I dedicated the the book to, to my, partially to my to my grand my grandchildren. So how old are they? Uh, 5 and 4 months. Oh wow. They better appreciate that dedication when they get older. I hope so. I I love them so much, you know. It's 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 great. You know, nature knows something, you know, to give these these pure little kids in this horrible time we're living in. I get this nice pure innocent love. Yeah. Cuz uh you know, it's, everyone needs love.
Ain't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's, I think that's one of the reasons people love movies and books and music and everything. You know, it gives uh, it gives love and, and and a heightened feeling in your soul. You know, because you know, uh, everyday life can beat you down. And it reminds us that we're we're products of our own stories. So we we can we can make choices and change the narrative if uh, it's not working for us. Sometimes. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not easy. But uh, sometimes the, the circumstance is forced on us. But, yeah, you could definitely make changes. I mean, I know all kinds of people, like, again, who have, like, uh, ended bad marriages or were widowed or something, and you have to start all over. And, and life goes on. So you got to make the most of it. And it, it's it's kind of cool to get the to get beat up and then you know in those situations and then go and then come out and go oh wait that hurt like hell I thought I was going to die but I'm still here I think I can do this well life always beats you up I mean it's just you know I don't know if it's modern life I think life was always I think life has always been hard I mean we have more gadgets now but uh, you know life's hard so you need to be picked up. And the gadgets are so interesting because it's, uh, I think we're always looking for community and we're looking for, you know, we're looking for our people to kind of, uh, I mean, especially for me, I want to bounce ideas off of people so I don't, so I know I'm not crazy. And they could tell me I'm crazy and they'll be like, okay, how am I crazy? And, you know, that we're giving that vice versa. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting with gadgets where that goes out to so many more people. And I feel like we kind of lose sense of the you know the, the the here and now of being able to just talk to someone like I get to talk to you right now. It's a different kind of communication. I mean, on one hand, it's nice to be in touch on Facebook and all these things to all these people from your past and stuff. It's not as direct and and forceful and and connected as a regular conversation. But it's it's a different kind of communication. We all have to like live with it now and yeah, make the most of it. There's people on there that I adore, like like on the social media, like from high school, and I'm like, oh my god! But I know the conversation would be utter shit if I ever saw them right now because we're all in different places. We'd probably just look at each other like, what? It's so true. I mean, but but it's it's funny when you when you're in touch with people from your deep past. There's, there's some kind of weird connection that it's it's it's, it's really there, and you, know, and you can speak some of the same language. And, and it's fun. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be, and they, you know, I sell them books. So, I mean, I, I mean, maybe, but it's good to be in touch and, uh, you know, roots run deep. Yeah. Especially I'm 3,000 miles away from my hometown, so it's nice to oh. be in touch with my New York friends. Yes, that makes it easier. Yeah, I'm from San Francisco. I, so. I love San Francisco. So how long have you been down here? Six years. Yeah, I love it in L.A. Yeah, I mean, they're two great places. It's not one. They always try to make L.A. versus San Francisco. Yeah. They're two great places. Yeah. We have the weather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's nice up there, too. Oh, but San Francisco has the weather. I miss the fog sometimes. Oh, man. I love San Francisco. It's gorgeous. I mean, you know, I love it. Every time I go up there, I say, ah, well, as I say, yeah, if you live in a place where millions of tourists go every year, you're living in the right place. At the same time, having millions of tourists, I mean, I, I, you know, it wasn't like I lived in the greatest neighborhood. So, like, the tourist buses where I lived, they, they would, the buses wouldn't stop. And the, tur- the eyeballs would, like, open up really big. They're like, oh, wow, people are smoking crack on the streets. Uh, and, and we're, like, two miles from the Golden Gate Bridge. And I'm just, like, sitting there going, welcome to city life, you know. It's true. I was like, uh, I remember the first time we went there, uh, we drove by the corner of Haight-Ashbury. We got really excited, took pictures of the, of the street sign. Yeah. And the kids are saying, what are you doing? He said, no, this is important, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
we don't we don't know i've never even been to alcatraz and you know and there's things in san francisco that i just don't you know people go there and they care about these certain things i just want to see my friends and go to a couple of few locals where it, i want to see my people i, I don't think of it as uh but go, but being out of there for a while because i had never been out of san francisco more than like a few months being out of there for years at a time and going back it's kind of fun being a like a tourist and yet it's home and I get to sit on like my corner cafe on Sutter and Leavenworth and just watch San Francisco go by and know that I'm leaving but know it's also home. I don't know I'm I don't know what that means. No, but it's a it's a great city with all these great neighborhoods and vistas and it's it's beautiful. You mentioned Alcatraz. That was really interesting cuz last time we were there we went to Alcatraz and it freaked me out that it's such a big tourist attraction. But it's a place of suffering, especially because I was doing research on the book and on prison. And if you learn about prison, it's nothing happy. But to see it as a tourist attraction with people selling T-shirts and, oh, you can see, oh, here's solitary confinement and here's Broadway. And uh, it really uh, it was a sobering experience. Uh, yeah, I imagine it's not that different from going to Auschwitz. I mean, it's a place of suffering. But uh, it's a great big tourist attraction. <laughs> so you never know. Many like 20 years ago, I was in Prague in uh, the Czech Republic, and I went to the Jewish cemetery in the middle of Prague, and I got there early in the morning. I was totally jet lagged, so, so that was cool. But it was—I just felt heavy. I felt very heavy walking through those those graves. And then the tourist bus came at like nine, and it was just people getting their photos and their photo opportunities. And I wanted to beat them all up. I'm like, are you kidding me? I, how can you be happy and mad about breakfast when we're in the middle of this? It just blew my mind. I've been to that Prague cemetery, and it's very moving the way they build the 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 headstones on top of each other. So it's just, I mean, it's, well, it's a tourist attraction now. Every, I guess, everything is. But uh, yeah. I mean, any kind of tourist business, it's a, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. You want the money, you just don't want the people. But sometimes it's necessary for, uh, you know, for the economy of certain areas. Right, right. So. Yeah, and then I was even watching, it's funny that you brought up uh, Auschwitz, because I was watching a documentary on the economy of Auschwitz and, the, and, the, and how the local city actually makes their money on that, which it kind of blew my mind because I didn't even think of that. You know, it's right, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's frightening, but uh, I guess it's the reality of, of tourism. Jeez. Okay, well, you never know in this life. There you go. <laughs> what was it? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's, go, let's go darker. No, I'm kidding. Auschwitz, <laughs> <laughs> Alcatraz, what are we missing? It's Monday. It's, it's, maybe that's, that's why we're talking this way, because it is Monday. <laughs> Wait, um, with, with what, what did you research about prison? Um, that just like kind of blew your mind because I'm I'm totally fascinated with prison because I just feel like it's it's I, I've had people on my show who've been in San Quentin and who've you know and it's just it blows my mind that people can go there and then like actually get out and it but it really changes them at the same time. It is. It's uh, I'm no expert on prison uh, and uh, I did I did my share of research and it's uh, I, that's why I did, it's not a good place to be which is why the book doesn't really have much prison in it. It's after prison. Parole is difficult enough. He's a, he, uh, my guy Larry has problems with his parole officer. But uh, prison life is something uh, you, you just don't want to live. It's, and it's a big problem in our country now. It's, you know, especially uh, my guy Larry went in at the age of 19 and, uh, you know, and when he gets out, uh, he's a big job to try to, you know, you know live his life. 
The, um, what's interesting is the, ni- the year 1969 because we have Quentin Tarantino's movie out now, which is 1969, right? And then there's a lot of 1969 in the zeitgeist, I think. Well, totally. There's you know, Summer of Lava, all that that whole time. Actually, it was Summer of Lava was 67. It's all the same thing. Woodstock, it's the whole 60s generation. So that's what I was, the first book is, you know, Teenagers in Love in the late 60s. And they were soaked in that, yes. And now it's a different world now. I mean, uh, in some ways better, in some ways not. Was, was Son of Sam also 69? No, that was later. Yeah, that was, like, he was in the 70s. 70s. Yes, but I mentioned all the, the other famous murders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, um, was it Altamont that was also 69? Yeah, that was uh, after, was, uh, at the end of the, the summer of Woodstock, was, yeah, yeah, Altamont. Yeah. Things change. Yeah, that, that, that seems like a pivotal year of sorts, though, on so many levels. And the man landing on the moon. Yes, yes. That's why I, one of the reasons I did, did, did the book of that, the first book of that year. Yes. Yes. And um, I was born in '69, so I. A great year, great. <laughs> You're the rooster, so we're we're all very excited about that. Me and other roosters. Other roosters. That's good. No, no, you never forget that number, though. <laughs> do you, um do you know your Chinese uh, new year? Not at all. I, I can go. I'll look. I'll I'll, go, I'll Google it when I get home. <laughs> I don't know what I grew because I grew up Jehovah's Witness, so I couldn't go anywhere near like astrology or even talk about that because that was demonism. Now I'm like all excited and I want to know. I'm like, oh, I'm a Pisces rising. Oh wait, my moon's in Gemini. Okay, what does that mean? I'm trying to find out, you know, from people. I think mean, there's a lot of things you couldn't that were forbidden to you as Jehovah's Witness. What about music and 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 movies and TV? you like to do all that? Uh, I couldn't watch. Well, I couldn't watch rated R movies, so I had to really do a lot of catching up. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the uh, the Berkeley Library was great because they. I, I went to the library and I got my VHS tapes of Godfather and of every movie that I wasn't able to see. I was still kind of in the Jehovah's Witnesses at the time, so I would like go to the library. I'd turn around, make sure no one from my congregation was there, run up, check them out, run out, bring them home. And you sound like, like my Mormon friends, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, comparisons to the Mar- you know, Mormons that um, that they have to be careful, and it's 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 uh, people that you know people will like ask me about Saturday morning cartoons. I have no reference. I was preaching on Saturday mornings. It's, really? Yeah. Well, that's great. So when did you start? Uh, do you still practice or? No, no. That's uh, look at me. I'm a mess. Well, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. You look fine to me. <laughs> no, it. it uh, no, I did. I. I did get out, but it took many years of therapy and working through that. Yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah. And then you know, and then I did drinks with Tony. I actually started this when I was still married to a Jehovah's Witness and still hadn't. I at the time I knew I was uh, intellectually out, but I still had to work on myself a lot. I didn't know I saw the belief system in me, but I feel like doing like just having conversations with people who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses and talking to them and just like going, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the human race with you now. It was, it was just so much fun. When you were raised, were you just surrounded by just Jehovah's Witnesses, just people in the community, no outside influences? Or? Yeah, well, uh, so I did go to like public school and things like that, but they keep you really busy. Three nights a week, you're doing Bible study. The other nights you're studying with your parents. Then you're preaching on weekends. So there's really no room for any, uh, there's no room for not for much and then everyone's telling on each other too so even if you tried to eat a birthday cake uh when when you were in the classroom you were told on and severely punished so there was it was it was very restrictive yeah wow (laughs) that's all i can say so yes i could see i wanted to to get away from that and i think that's why prison intrigues me because it's so restrictive so i'm because i because it's the physical embodiment of restriction 
where I kind of had the mental embodiment. And I, and I found myself um, like even putting more restrictions on myself. And, you know, like I was talking about earlier, the self-sabotage thing, because that feels normal. And that feels like a mental institutionalization type thing where a physical institutionalization has, like, I, I would feel some similarities. I like that word self-sabotage. I wish I'd put it in this book. There's, a, there's, a, there's some self-sabotage that goes on, unfortunately, because of, uh, of the patterns that people have in their lives and how he doesn't want to make the same mistakes. And damn it, you know, sometimes you make the same mistakes, even if you don't want to. Well, that, that's cool. I said... <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely use it. Like in one, you know, in, in a future, don't, yeah, yeah, it's all yours. And just be like, well, you know, and drop self-sabotage a lot. And and that, I, if, I, if I listen to another podcast and you do it, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, don't, don't, don't credit me. I'll just be like, all right, Peter. TM, TM Tony. Oh, no, no, no. But, you know, self-sabotage, that's probably uh, uh, more widely, uh, you know, more widely around than we know. It's. I, I think, you know, people are scared to to break out of their shell and to kind of break out of things and it's uh, and break out of patterns. I don't know. I'm just. I've been trying to figure out. I've been trying to figure this out for many years. And yes. and people are besides having a job and and taking care of your own life, much less uh, you know, it's, you know, lives get filled up really quickly. So uh, what year did you move to Los Angeles? 1989. So really? That's 30 years ago. I can't believe oh, it. Wow. So now I've lived here longer than I lived in New York, or much longer than in my hometown. We were just talking about what makes your hometown. Is it where you grew up or where you choose to live? So now after 30 years, where I live is sort of my hometown. It's not where I grew up, but sort of both. Yeah. I think we have the relation, like, like the relationships I have with people who grew up in Millbrae, which, is a, which was a dreary suburb of San Francisco for many years. But I know those people from the core because we just lived in concrete and gross and we all kind of suffered together through school and just way too much time on our hands, you know, um, in certain aspects. And it's... It's true. You go, I mean, we talk about how deep the roots are. Just on Facebook, a bunch of my old friends were complaining about this one dentist. We all went to this one hor- horrible, sadistic dentist. <laughs> so, and yeah, everyone, you know, you know really liked, liked the reference. And we all remember it's stuff that's, you know, a long time ago. Absolutely, and there's there's fun and suffering in that because we because we could totally bond over a shitty dentist that was you know many years ago. I, 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 yeah, and it's and it, and but it's the beauty is we have a group of people who know the reference instantly when we when you would bring up his name. I would know nothing about it, but you have your people where you just go that guy. And you can have a conversation for two hours on them. And you can have a big audience or a little audience. But you, you, you got to share your stuff. I mean, and, and you find that, you know, you know people respond. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If not, send it out anyway. You know, you know what are you going to do? Play golf? I mean, it's like, you know, you got to do your thing. You know, right is right. Yeah. yeah. When, when did you, when did you uh, get the passion for writing? When did you know you were a writer? Well, in college, I had a great uh, teacher. Uh, I was a poet named June Jordan, who's passed now. And she, the first meeting I had with her, she said, "You're a writer." So that was it. <laughs> and, yeah, I was. I was very lucky, and yeah, she's a wonderful uh, force in my life. Good to have a mentor. Yeah. In fact, in uh, the first book, the the uh, judge's name is Jordan. So I named, you know, oh, I named after. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you have to find like, you know, characters' names from people from the end of your life. Oh, so yeah. I wanted to make her, I mean, give her a good title. Yeah. 
I, I did that with uh, my first novel. I had my first grade teacher in there because she meant yeah. everything to me. And then, I, and then when it came out, I found out she died of breast cancer. And I was like, damn it, I wanted her to find out. Yeah. But she's alive in your book. You kept yeah. it, you kept her name alive. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. No, it, it's always a tough time to, to find character names. I go through like, what to name your baby? <laughs> Looking for a good, for a good name. That's one one place. And yeah. and you know, and sometimes yeah, I reward my friends. I'll name name someone after a friend. I'll use his name. I, I've done it where um, I've done it both ways, where I have to really research and really find the name, and then sometimes I'm, as I'm writing, the first name just comes to my head, and that's the name that makes sense. And I don't know why either either of those work or don't. But. Well, you'll change the name because the name is just wrong, and yeah. sometimes the you, the right name clicks in. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they, like I'm working on something now where I just name I just named the uh, I, I've I've had a nickname for the hero, but I had to I had to give his real name, and. Um, and it's and then I just you know okay it's that it's Michael I'm like all right blah, 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 you know just bouncing through it and I'm like wait a minute Archangel Michael oh my oh. God this makes sense and but it, I there was no thought to it when I just dropped it in there no you can find all kinds of discoveries about names in the first book the uh, uh, this, the uh, character's name uh, is Eleanor and I was working all the way through it and then I realized all the way into pages no they call her Helenor. And I made a discovery about the name, use the name later on in the, in the writing process. Right. So you can get good stuff out of names sometimes. Now, when you say they called her Helenor, or, or the, what was the discovery of that? Well, I discovered that that's what, they, that, that's what the character should call the, the, you know, the mother who was against their, their, uh, their uh, affair. Right. So I said, but that was you know, later in the process. So you can you know, get some good juice out of names. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had, it was funny because I, I, we did a, we did a film based on the novel uh, and we had a that that I wrote and we were talking it was we had this guy it was a sub it was a minor character in the book but it's a guy who had to confess to masturbation in front of a Jehovah's Witness kid right so so it was we were having a story meeting we're just and we were referring to yeah and we're like so so when masturbator Bill comes in okay masturbator Bill on scene seventy three and. We were just referencing him like that. And then all of a sudden, it was started cracking up. And she's like, what? And I'm like, the kids have to call him Masturbator Bill. This is hilarious. And it was it was just a reference for this character. That's great, though. But you get laughs. If he gets laughs, it's good. There you go. That's all the, yeah, that, that's good, though. And, the, and, the, and, the, and even in the uh, credits, it's Masturbator Bill. <laughs> that, that's discovery. Discovery stuff. I mean, it's a, you know, a lucky find, you know, and you get something good. And it, was, and it was actually based on a, uh, I was on a Bible study with an elder, and the guy's name was Bill Judnick. Probably had sued for this. <laughs> he didn't confess to masturbation, but I just used the name because he just had a very sad apartment. So I remember, that, yeah, I just remembered his name, Bill Judnick. Wow. Um, well, you know, if you're out there, I, I apologize and fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, I'm sure he's doing, his, uh, he's doing what he can. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> So kind. Like, I, I had this moment of aggression, and you're just like, Tony, he's just living his life, fella. Well, maybe not him. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen him in like, you know, the, what a judgment I just had. I have not seen him in probably, well, no, last couple times I saw him, he was a dick. And that was when I was in the Jehovah's Witnesses. More ways than one. And then in, in the Jeho yeah, exactly in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he kind of treated me like shit. And so maybe that's why I, the animosity came out when I was just talking about it. Well, you know, uh, it's hard to uh, dis you know, you know, disqualify your own experience. If that's what you really experience, I mean, you want to be charitable, but, you know, dicks are dicks, you know. But if I start writing a story about him from his point of view, 
then I'm going to find total empathy. And then that will make me a better person for finding the empathy in his character. And so now I have to write the book about him. Well, look, at, look at Lolita, maybe one of the greats of all time. I mean, when you think objectively about what Humbert Humbert is doing, it's disgusting. But when you're inside his brain, you get a great novel. And then you're Nabokov. You're Nabokov. <laughs> then you're Nabokov in Russian and English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I still need to read. You brought up Anna Karina earlier. I still need to read that. I, 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 that but that that's a hefty commitment there. It is, but boy, it's, is it worth it? A couple of years ago, I made a, a real effort to read a whole bunch of classics I had missed, you know, growing up, and that was one of them. Boy, is that great! I read War and Peace too. That's amazing. He is the best. He's so. So uh, between the two, because uh, I haven't read War and Peace either, what's the first one I should read? Anna Karenina, okay. I think. It's, it's just, it, I mean, yeah, he's just great. He's just great. And do you remember the translation? Because I know there's like a bunch of translations out there where you're, yeah. some of them are crap. Do you remember the one that was? Yeah. There's, a, there's a newer one. I think I read the the, uh, the Constance Garnett, the, the classic one. I think there, there's a newer one out by a team. It's a, a, a man and a woman, I think, a, doing like a new generation of Russian translations okay. that is, I think are more accurate. Yeah. yeah. It blows my mind how a translation could. Re- I didn't even know that translations can really kill a book if, they, if it's not done right. Kill a book or make a book. I know that, yeah. that who should call it? Uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez always said that the English translation of Hundred Years of Solitude was better than his original. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, yeah. Uh, but you never know. I think he was being charitable. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I want to get a translator who'll switch the plot points, make all my characters more empathetic, right? Make it better. Any, yeah. any help, any help. Yeah. 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 I want to be big in somewhere. You know, if I'm big in Barcelona, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm big in Lisbon, I'll move to Lisbon. That'll be fine. You never know. I mean, you, you just do a little uh, search, and there's so many famous writers from different countries who we've never heard of in our provincialism. They've never heard of our people, and it's a big world. So, you know, we take our little piece. Do, uh, do, you, uh, do you speak any other languages? Because I've been dying to learn Spanish. Uh, no, I took you know, high school French, a little college French. And I, you know, but not... A petit peu, très petit peu. But you know, it's good for you. It's good for education. But I'm not good in language. I wish I were. I have enough trouble with English. Well, you were good with that because I was just like, oh, that sounded really French. I'm like, did anyone else notice I was speaking to a French person here? <laughs> yeah, this is a nice cafe. This this is nice enough to be French. leche. Now see that I'm this I bastard. Yeah, you're too international. I think everything is about just getting the point across. I remember when I was in Eastern Europe and no one knew a lick of English and I would just be like, you know, I'd like go, you know, uh, I I knew how to say like, excuse me, and how do you speak English? But if I had to go to the bathroom, I would just like put my hand toward my pants and go, (laughs) and then like kind of look around and they would point. The international language. Yeah. But now a lot of people speak English now. It's, It's all over. It's better than it was. I, I was in Eastern Europe, and, and the, the other great uh, tourist language was German. They'd more likely speak German than English. Now I think everyone's, everyone wants to speak English. It's, we're lucky that we're in the, you know, we don't have to learn another language, although we should, especially in, Span- in L.A. I wish I knew Spanish. Please. I try, I try to practice my Spanish, and people just look at me and go, you really don't have to. And I'm like, no, no, I want to. I want to. Yeah, I know. It's, you know. It sound bad. It's good to make the effort, but... I'm just, yeah, I just don't have that gift. I wish I did. I remember yeah, now, now I just, when I was in Italy, I, I had a pretty good handle on Italian, and this was, you know, 96. And um, there was this uh, American couple walking up toward, toward me and my wife at the time. And 
they said they looked at us and they said excuse me so they approached us in english right and i was like oh my god how, i don't even know what i said because I, I was like uh i'm now i'm thinking in czech <laughs> what was it i said uh no uh italiano you know it was like i just rattled off italian and walked right by him and like i was a dick and I turned around. I was like, "I'm just kidding. What are you looking for?" And you should have seen the shock in their eyes. <laughs> you can, that's, that's a good. They'll have a good tourist story out of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of flattering that they, that they 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 took you for a native. Yeah. I, well, you know, I was. I tend. Yeah, I dressed differently when I, I. I used to dress more in suit jackets and stuff. You know, and then. Now, you know, you get divorced, you put on a couple pounds, you want to be comfortable. Now I dress utility, you know. You're just like an American, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got my fanny pack and I got my uh, Hawaiian shirt on. You're comfortable. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful day, you know. That's one thing about, uh, about living in California. Uh, everyone's casual. You can go to the nicest restaurants, the nicest places. Everyone's uh, yeah, shorts and a tank top, basically. Now, see, I still can't do that. I can't bring, like, even here, I can never be in shorts or, or flip-flops or a T-shirt. But it's all around me. Around us, right. But look around us, yeah. I don't know what it is about this little wire in my brain where it's just like I still have to respect the establishment or not the establishment of, like, you know, the world, but the establishment of the restaurant or I don't know what it is. I, I like the little classiness. I try to bring it. Yeah, it's also a sense of respect. To the place you're going into, the you're not going in looking like a bum, you know? I don't want to look at some guy's toes while I'm eating a steak. Well, it's like a, oh, when you go on an airplane, people take off their shoes and spread out on an airplane. Oh, say, Please, we're in a confined space, you know? But yeah, people are casual these days. I mean, you see guys all the time in pajama bottoms, man. Come on, take a, put on a pair of pants. <laughs> Yeah, well, and even in San Francisco in the Castro district where they just kind of stand there naked, but they kind of they look at you, they look at you like, "Look at me, I'm naked." I'm like, "You know, I'm I'm cool with your new I'm cool that you're exercising your right as a nudist, but you don't got to stare me down." And I and I am intimidated by your penis. Yeah, but that's what draws the tourists. I mean, that's, that's what they want to see. <laughs> We're looking for the penis people. <laughs> take, take us to the penis district. <laughs> Wait, uh, when I was married, my the whole family on my ex-wife's side was Jehovah's Witnesses. So they came to San Francisco to visit, and they were like, oh, we, we, we're going to go see what the Castro's like. And I told them, I was like, well, you better keep your windows up because they jack off into the cars when you're there. They're like, oh, really? Oh, thank you so much for telling me that. How do you get there fast? Yeah, no, and I, but I was just being a dick because they're so, you know, they're against uh, homosexuals and they just, you know, they think they're all going to die. So, but I, but I would tell them things like that in all seriousness and they'd be like, thank you, Tony, for looking out for us. Maybe he will come back to the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know. Wow. So, wow, that's some, uh, something to deal with, though, and when you try to grow up, you know. Yeah. I wonder how that affected Michael Jackson, for instance. Oh, I, I feel really bad for him. I feel like uh, I, he's someone where I was just like, God, because, you know, fame, the fame, level of fame that he had to deal with and the Jehovah's Witness background that I don't think he ever was able to really um, get rid of and just work through. I, I, I've always felt bad for him. Yeah, it was part, part of his inner conflicts, yeah. among other things. Were you allowed to listen to the Jackson 5? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you, the, uh, Until he got to, so he was disfellowshipped after Thriller. So, but he was still a Jehovah's active Jehovah's Witness up until Thriller, and even after Thriller, when uh, on MTV, when you saw the video for Thriller, do you remember the video? At the beginning, there was a disclaimer that said, "I do not believe in the occult or anything like this." Signed Michael Jackson. That was for him not to get this fellowship from the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and also not to pull the video. So. 
Wow, disfellowship. That's a that's a hell of a word. Wow, that's a kind of shunning. Wow, but they did it anyway. And then and then after a thriller, then they did it anyway. And then I think and I think like you know and I think Bad came out after that. You know, he's a brilliant artist. But at the same time, I think those demons of growing up Jehovah's Witness just really plagued him so much that it's wow. it's another layer to his uh, his complicated story. Yeah. Wow. So life, you never know about life, though. Boy, you think how many people would envied him and admired him and think of what a tortured life he lived. Yeah, and you know he had his little diet Pepsi can, pour it out, put the fancy wine in there. Oh yeah, just drink a oh, diet yeah. Pepsi. Oh, so he, uh, Jesus blood and Jesus juice. Oh, you don't even want to know about it. I still haven't been able to watch. Uh, what was it? Leaving Neverland. Did you, have you watched that? I watched I think some of the first one, and then my wife said, "You don't want to watch this." You know, it's just, uh, but it's good for truth to come out. Truth, truth should prevail. I hope, it, I hope it's truth. I don't know. I didn't watch it, but it, because it just, it, it all really disturbs me on so many levels. Oh, it's sad. He's a yeah. you know, great hero to a lot of people. And, but boy, the, the evidence is just so overwhelming. Uh, it's just like, you know, you know, by the book, uh, sexual uh, predator behavior. But what are you going to do? Sad life. And a complicated legacy now. We all have to, do, you know, it's like all these people. Do you know? Do you, you know? How do you listen to Michael Jackson and all all these people? I mean, uh, do, you know, Dustin Hoffman, Kevin Spacey, all these guys coming down with uh, with with bad. You know, they're bad actors, but maybe they did good work. Right. Yeah, I have a hard time watching Kevin Spacey now. I, it's it's just like Usual Suspects and things like that. I can't I can't even watch it now with the same. It, it it's sad that that. It, all those people worked on that film and all those people put all their hard work into it and then he had to kind of not be a good person and really bring the whole thing down. It's a shame, he's a wonderful actor and all these guys, you know, Hoffman's, you know, all, all these guys, uh, you, know, uh, you know, but we know like Picasso was a, was a dick, he was horrible with women. And so the same thing, so it's trust the art, not the artist. A lot of these, a lot of my favorite writers are conservatives, They're really against uh, my own beliefs. But damn, if you're, you know, if you if you make good art, you know, uh, I'll almost, yeah, I listen to Wagner, and you know, I, he's not my favorite uh, guy as a person, but you know, I, I, you know, I love the work. I wonder if people are saying that about me and you. Where they're just like, ah, oh, you know, they're, they're, those people, they, they, but, but the work's all right. No, they say no, these are regular guys. I just wish they were a little better. But, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, but they're good guys. We'll give, we'll give them a chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're the guys that people are kind of like. Okay, we'll just give you a chance. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you. Give us a mercy read. Just a little mercy read. All we're looking for is mercy reads, people. Just a chapter. Give us a chapter. <laughs> and a five-star Amazon review, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and that, everyone, uh, we're going to end with you have to give Peter Seth a five-star review. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tony. It was a blast. <laughs> Peter Seth on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, When I Got Out. He's also the author of What It Was Like, a novel of love and consequence. Hey, thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I will see you next Wednesday. I hope you have a great week. Oh, my God. Is it the holidays coming up? Jesus Christ. Literally, I guess. Um, And next week on the show, we have, I had it just in front of me, Annalie Newitz. She has a fantastic new book coming out. Also upcoming guest, Liska Jacobs. Check out her book, The Worst Kind of Want. Many other fun guests coming on the show. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next Wednesday. 
I may have already said that. Do I repeat myself? Yes. Do I repeat myself? Yes.